Well, good morning, everyone. Are you excited? I feel like you can't help but be a little excited walking in and seeing all the work that so many people, so many people have put together. If you haven't been here over the last few days, you just have no idea how many people have helped put on VBS and put so much work and will continue to put so many hours of work in over the next few days. And I just want to take a second before we get into the lesson to thank everyone. Thank you to all the people that have come here on, spent a few late nights, spent a few, had to find someone to watch the kids, have put a lot of work into this. Everything looks good, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to go really well. So thank you to everyone for that. If you would, turn to Judges 4. That's where we're going to be for the majority of this lesson. I was trying to decide what I was going to talk about this morning, and I was, I was talking to Jacob, I don't know, probably Tuesday, or maybe it was last week, I don't even remember, and he said, whatever you do, just don't preach on the parables, because we're going to hear plenty about that this week. And I said, okay, I can work with that. So we're in Judges this week, no parables in Judges, or at least not in Judges form. And if, you're, if you know much about the story of Judges... You know that there's a lot of, really it's filled with pretty sad stories. A lot of stories of God's people rejecting him, rebelling against him, and then facing the consequences of that. They're punished for their rebellion. They go into, well, not full captivity, but they are captives in their own land. Often they face oppression and then they cry out to God. And God sends someone to save them. That's the sort of cycle of Judges we talk about a lot. But Judges 4 is a little bit unique, even for the book of Judges. Because even though you will see the first part of the story is the same, the people are going to rebel, the people are going to face the consequences of that, there's going to be a people that are going to come in and oppress them, and then they cry out to God, and so far, everything sounds about right, but... The cast of heroes you get in Judges 4 is not quite like what you normally think of in the Judges. You don't see mighty warriors saving Israel with the sword, at least not the kind of, you know, knight in shining armor idea we sometimes get of warriors. You don't see that in Judges 4. That's nowhere to be found. Instead, the heroes that we see in Judges 4 are people that would not be the most likely uh, person you'd think of. They're people that would have been, in many cases, looked down on by the world. Some of them would not even be trusted by God's people. And that's who God picks to work salvation for him. That's who God picks to serve him and deliver the people. And so we're going to look at Judges 4 today, and we're going to say that no matter what our station is in life, no matter who you are, so to speak, outside these doors, you can be involved in God's work. So let's start by just reading just the first three verses of Judges 4. If you're in Judges 4, Judges 4, 1 through 3. 
And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in the farmland of the Gentiles. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So again, just like we've seen time and time again throughout this book already, and what you will see if you read the book over and over and over and over again, God's people rebelled. They sinned, they did what was evil before him, they chose to live in sin and idolatry. And the way the story words it, it seems like almost the moment Ehud died, it's like they were waiting for him to die. The moment Ehud dies, they're like, all right, glad we can live the way we want to again. And they go off to this life of sin and idolatry, and because of that, again, God sends consequences. And this time, the punishment is no joke. God sends some Canaanites, Jabin and Sisera, to oppress Israel. And this army has 900 chariots of iron, which for us, I mean, we haven't lived ever in a world where chariots of iron are a super big deal. I don't think most modern militaries would be super scared of chariots of iron, but that's not the world they're living in. Chariots of iron, those are like tanks back then. Those 900 tanks are coming up on the battlefield against you. That's a big deal. This Canaanite army is large and they are ready to fight and they are, they're scary and they're meant to be scary. And they've been dominant in Israel for a while. They came and they started oppressing Israel and they have been oppressing Israel, it says, for 20 years. So not only are they a pretty strong army, pretty capable army, but they're a capable army who's been let to run Israel for 20 years. And then we see our first glimmer of hope here. If you want to read uh, verses 4 through 10, that's where we're going to be, to see what God does when Israel cries out for help. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you you by the river in Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. All right. So here we're introduced to our judge. But our judge is really like 
unlike any other you see in the book. You see, Deborah, she's not a warrior. She's not a military leader like the vast majority of the rest of the judges. Instead, Deborah is a prophetess. She receives oracles from God and she delivers them to the people. And other than, if my memory serves me, I should, have, I should have looked this up instead of just trying to go off the cuff. But if my memory serves me correctly, other than Samuel, we don't see any other judges directly listed as prophets. Deborah is pretty unique, pretty unusual in that regard. Whereas other judges bring rule through the sword, they bring rule through fighting, Deborah brings rule through the oracles of God, from hearing the words of God and delivering them to the people and judging over them that way. And of course, Deborah is the only female judge. And that is a point that the text wants to make abundantly clear. Just look at some of the ways she's described. So uh, verse four, she's a prophetess. So not only is she prophet, but it emphasizes she is a female prophet. In fact, the original text uh, uses the term a prophetess woman. So in the same phrase, emphasizing twice, by the way, if you missed it the first time, Deborah is a woman. And uh, she's pointed out to be a wife. And then if you turn over to chapter 5, verse 7, she's said to be a mother to all Israel. The text wants to make it abundantly clear that a woman is leading the people. And I don't have to tell you how unusual that is for biblical times. Deborah is not the leader and not the judge that maybe we would expect. She doesn't look like the rest of the judges. She doesn't have the same role as some of the rest of the judges. And yet, she is the judge that God sends to save the people against this great army. And this is when we also meet Barak. And I'm going to be honest, Barak is kind of a a little bit of a funny character to me in some ways. Because on the surface, when you look at him, he looks like he should be the one that's the judge in this story. He's the military leader. He's the one that God says, go out and fight. He's the one that holds the sword. For most of the stories throughout the book of Judges... That's the guy that's listed as the judge. In fact, I've, I've even noticed as you kind of grow up and you have, you know, you know, I think we have some of those kinds of art in the classrooms here where it'll be like a poster and a list all of the judges. And it's the, one of the posters that we had in our Bible class growing up. It, would, it said Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, and then Deborah slash Barak. Those were the judges for this time. Because on the surface... Barak, he's, he's a military leader. He kind of looks like he's not the judge. In fact, he doesn't do very much leading the entire story. And that's the point. You see, the, the first time we see Deborah and Barak interact, it is very telling. Deborah calls Barak and she says, Has the Lord, the God of Israel, not commanded you? Get an army together and go fight. Deborah almost sounds angry. She's almost like, what's taking you so long? Has not God told you to do this? Why haven't you done this yet? The answer is Barak doesn't want to, right? Barak says, Deborah, you must not have heard about those 900 iron chariots coming. 
You must not have heard of how big this army is that's coming. And so Barak says, okay, okay, Deborah, fine, I'll go fight if you come with me. That's kind of weird, right? Why do you think Barak wants Deborah to come with him? Have you ever thought about that? Why does Barak, because, okay, Deborah's not listed as a military leader. She doesn't seem at any point in the story to take up a sword and a spear. So I don't think he's bringing her for her fighting prowess necessarily. So why does Barak want her there? I think the answer is because Barak knows that God's with Deborah. Kind of like you'll see some of the stories later where the people think if they just bring the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle, then everything's going to go fine because that's the presence of God. We've got God here, so therefore we have to win the battle. They think they can manipulate God into protecting them. I think that's the same thing Barak's doing here. He says, I know the word of the Lord comes through Deborah. And it doesn't come through me. So if I just bring Deborah with me, I can know for sure that God's presence is with me because he's going to send word to Deborah. He doesn't trust the promise of God that if you go out and fight, I'll give you the glory. I'll win the battle for you. All you got to do is go. He doesn't trust that. He says, Deborah, you got to come with me. And Deborah says she'll go, but... She makes it clear that because of Barak's lack of trust, because of Barak's lack of faith, even though they're going to win the battle, none of the glory and the honor is going to come to him. He's not going to get any of the credit. I keep harping on this, but he shouldn't be the guy on the judge's poster on the wall in the kids' room. That's what Deborah says. In fact, she says the real victory... The real glory is going to go to a woman instead. Something that for us, maybe we would kind of shrug off. But to Barak, that's a slap in the face. That is a huge disgrace. That one stung. All right, let's read the description of the battle itself. If you want to pick back up in verse 11 with me, we'll start there. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Okay, I know I said we're going to get into the battle, but let's take a break right here for a second. Because I want you to notice, everything in this passage so far has built up to the battle that's coming. Everything. We talked about the army, we talked about the oppression, we found our heroes, everything's building up to this big battle, and it's finally here, and then we take a verse stop and we have to talk about some random family that we don't know anything about. We have to talk about some Gentile family that is completely unrelated from anything in the story that we've seen so far. It's really strange, but the author interrupts this story for a reason. Because this is going to be important in a second. It's going to be really important in a few verses. And the author wants you to know this family, Heber the Kenite's family, they're not exactly Israelites. They're kind of related somewhere back through Moses' in-laws. But this family, they are not Israelites. They are foreigners 
living in and near the people of Israel. So that's important. Hold on to that in the back of your head. That's going to come up again. All right, let's get back into the rest of the story. Back in verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from the farmland of the Gentiles to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given, you, given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to the farmland of the Gentiles. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. And so here again, we see Deborah almost have to prod Barak into action. She says, God has already done what he said he would. God promised if you get an army together of the people and you come to this place, he's going to bring Sisera there to fight you and you're going to win. So Deborah finally convinced Barak to gather an army together. And he finally went over to this place, and there the army of Sisera was, just like God had promised. Now, the only thing left to do is go out and fight. And I don't really know for sure what's going on before this, but the story almost seems to give the impression that Barak's there. He's ready. But he kind of seems like he's almost stalling a little bit. Seems like he's got the army there. He sees Sisera's army, but Barak's not doing anything about it. He's procrastinating a little bit. And Deborah says, get up and go fight. God's already led us into the battle. The impression that Deborah gives is God has already won the victory for us. Uh, What's the exact wording that she says? Uh, For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? The idea being, Barak, all you have to do is just get out there. You don't have to be great. You don't have to really do anything. You just got to go out there and God's going to take care of the rest. And Barak seems like he's almost going into the battle like a, like a cartoon with his heels dug into the ground and Deborah pushing him. But finally, Barak leads the army out. And the battle's like a footnote. And you notice that? Everything in this story leads up to this battle. And then we get to the battle and it's like, well, it's over. God won. Sisera fled. The whole entire army was defeated. And it's over like that. Because the point was never the battle. You were never going to get some sort of ancient epic of all these warriors clashing. Because that wasn't what was going on. God won the battle for the people before they even stepped foot on the battlefield. The battle wasn't actually the important part. Which Barak seemed to miss over and over. Just like we've seen repeatedly in the book of Judges... 
God won the battle for his people, just like he promised he would. When Israel cries out, he hears them and he responded, God saved his people. But there's one bit of this story that's left. So you may have noticed, we didn't hear what happens to Sisera. You may have picked up on that. You see that Sisera runs away. He leaves the big iron chariot. Remember the iron chariot that's supposed to be the big military vehicle, the thing that Barak was so scared of? He left it. He's gone. And he fled somewhere. And let's pick back up in verse 17. And let's finish the story. And it's going to have to do with the family of Heber the Canaanite that we talked about earlier. This Gentile family. All right, so back in verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of jail. Again, emphasizing he left the chariot. He's running away. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of jail, the wife of Heber the Kenite, that man we read about earlier. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor, Sisera's boss, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me and do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, and so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple." And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. All right. So we see here, Jael, again, not the kind of hero you would expect. Because again, Jael is not some sort of Israelite warrior... Jail is a woman, and not only is she a woman, she's a foreign woman. And not only is she a foreign woman, but she's a foreign woman who has family ties to the enemy. If you lined up every single person that was in and near Israel during the day of the battle, and I said to you, pick out who you think is going to win for Israel, Jail is about the last person you would pick. There wouldn't be many people in line behind her. And yet, she's the one that delivers God's people. She's the one that wins the glory. She's the one that does God's will. And we already heard earlier in the story, right? We heard that a woman was going to win the glory... But if you hear that at the beginning of the story and you don't know the end of the story, who would you think the woman that was going to win the glory was? It's like, oh, that's Deborah. Obviously, she's the prophet and the judge. She's the one that's going to win all the glory for this military victory. No, it's kind of one of those, as if that wasn't a big enough thing for God, God uses 
the least likely of servants, a non-Israelite woman who has ties to the enemy, that's who God chooses to deliver his people. That's who God uses to do his will. It's almost comical the way this plays out because Sisera, I mean, he immediately trusts Jael. I assume he knows the family ties and she says, turn aside. And it doesn't seem like he has any second thoughts. He's like, okay, goes in the tent. And you notice what he says? Jail, don't let any man in here. What is, he, what is he scared of? What's the threat he's scared of? He's scared of some Israelite warrior showing up at the tent, someone like Barak and saying, hey, is Sisera here? That's what, that's what he's scared of. But that wasn't the threat to him. Barak, again, seems to arrive just a little bit late every time. Barak shows up and, and Jail's like, well, I already did it. You want to come see? That wasn't the threat. The threat was jail all along. Jail, someone who would have been looked down on by the world because she was a woman. She would have been looked down on by God's people because she was a Gentile. God says, that's who's going to win the glory for my people. That's who's going to save Israel. So now let's take just a few minutes to talk about what we can learn from this story. And what we have to learn from this story is that we have to do God's will no matter what else is happening. We have to work for him. Because God's people are an imperfect people. I want you to hear me say that. God's people are not perfect. God's people are going to let you down sometimes. God's people aren't going to do what they're supposed to do sometimes. God's people are going to disappoint you sometimes. I don't like saying that, but it's better that you hear it than that you're surprised by it later down the road. That's the truth. And yet, we still have to do What's right? Because look at this story. So Barak, he's the, he's the military leader. He's the guy that maybe we'd expect to be the judge. Barak's the guy who's going to save the people. He's going to get up and he's going to go fight. Barak, he doesn't do any of that. Barak's too scared. Barak doesn't want to go. Barak definitely, he says, I'm not going by myself. I have no interest in taking this fight on on my own. And so he brings in Deborah, and ultimately, Jael, even though Barak doesn't know, is the one that saves him. But how does this story work if Deborah says, when Barak says, hey, Deborah, I don't, I don't want to fight. I don't, I don't want to have to do that. Uh, if you'll go, I'll go, but I'm not really interested otherwise. What if Deborah says, eh, you know, Barak kind of makes some good points. I don't really want to go to battle either. How's the story work? How's it end? Well, God's going to raise, it's kind of like what Mordecai said to Esther. God's going to raise up a deliverer from somewhere. God's going to save his people. You just won't get any part of it. How's the story work if Jael says, well, you know, I kind of have family ties to this guy. 
I could get in big trouble for this. The easiest thing to do is just to let him hide here, and he'll leave sometime. How does the story end? Same way. God's going to find some way to deliver his people. You just won't be a part of it. And that's the same way for us today. Look in chapter 5, verses 15 through 18. Look at the difference and how, what Deborah says the difference is between those that are blessed by God and those who are not blessed by God is. Chapter 5, verse 15 through 18. This is from the Song of Deborah. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of the heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. But Zebulun was a people who risked their lives to the death, and Naphtali, too, on the heights of the fields. Deborah says that those that are blessed, those who get the honor, those who get the glory, they are those who are willing to fight for God. They were those who were willing to serve him even at great personal risk to themselves. Even at the point of being willing to die for it, they were willing to do what God says. Deborah says those are the people that deserve honor and glory. The people that decided, oh, I'm actually feeling pretty comfy here in my recliner. I actually got to go to work later. I can't deal with this. Those are the people that don't get the honor from God. That's what Deborah says the difference is. Deborah kind of breaks stuff down into two categories. Either you were willing to serve God no matter the cost, or you weren't. And if you're willing to serve God, God's going to save you. God's going to deliver you. God's going to bless you. And if you're like Barak, if you're like some of the rest of the people that decided they'd rather stay home, you don't have any part in that honor and that glory. So the ultimate point, we've got to fight for God. We've got to be his servants and see what he will work through us. Even if we're the people that the world doesn't want anything to do with, even if we're the people that outside of these doors, we're nothing, God says, I can use you. I can use you. Just give yourself over to me. Because we know when we join God's side, when we serve him, we are always going to win. We are always going to be blessed. I think Barak knew that. But at the end of the day, he let his fear, he let all kinds of things and distractions get in the way. But Deborah and Jael, they knew what they had to do, and they did it. And because of that, they got the blessings and the honor and the glory for God. So let's live like we believe that we need to serve God no matter the cost. Let's live like we believe God can use us. Um, I was asked to mention, before I forget, all the classes in the back are switched around right now. So listen up. If you are in Kirk's class, you're in the Bible lab now. Kirk's class in the Bible lab. If you were in the Bible lab, you're now in the high school class. 
And if you're in the high school class, get ready for this. You're in where Kirk's class used to be. All right, you guys got all that? We're going to pray, and then we're going to be dismissed to our classes. Father, we are an imperfect people. We have all fallen short of your glory. We have all let your people down. And we have all let our fears and our doubts and our worries hold us back from doing what we know is right. Hold us back from serving you the way we should. Help us never to be ashamed of the gospel, the power of Christ to salvation. Help us look past our fears, the temptations, and the distractions of the world. And help us look forward to your work and to your glory. Help us to empty ourselves out completely as your servants following you and serving you and serving your people in love. Strengthen our hands so that we may apply them to your work. It's all this we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.